Well, good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. My name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here, and it is great to be with you. Uh, if you are a guest or a visitor, welcome. We are glad that you are with us and that we come into this place to praise our God and our King. Uh, he's the one who has called us, and so uh, if you are a guest or a visitor, welcome. Um, and I do think it's good for you to know that, that the very words that we have sung this morning, we believe that Christ is the King, that that is not just a name that goes over our door, but that is, uh, that is the reality in which we live out of, that he is our God and our King, and he is the one worthy of our praise. And so this morning, uh, we're going to look at that very topic as we consider Psalm 33. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to Psalm 33. If you do not have a Bible, there is a Bible in the chair in front of you. Uh, I encourage you to have it open. It's always good to have God's Word open before us as we uh, examine it. This summer, um, we are actually picking up with a series that we've been doing for uh, multiple summers. So if you've been with us, at least over the last few years, um, you've seen that every summer we've returned to the Psalms. And we'll continue to do that, uh, Lord willing, next summer until we hit every single 150. I, I mentioned this to someone the other day, and he said, wow, 150 Psalms in one summer. <laughs> I was like, no, 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 that, that would be way too much. <laughs> we'll just do it over 20 or 30 years, and then we'll cover it all. So. Um, but we are starting again this, this morning in our summer psalms. And as we're returning to them, it's helpful for us to remember what the psalms are. You see, it's very easy for us to think about the psalms as simply the private prayer journals of David or Asaph or, or the sons of Korah or some other of the psalm writers. It's easy to think that they just kind of use these primarily for themselves. But, but actually, the psalms are much more than that. I mean, certainly David prayed these words and and the writers prayed them but but these psalms actually were primarily used within the people of god as songs to be sung that they were a part of the worship of god's corporate people that they would come together and they would sing and it's it's important for us to remember that because song is such an important part of what we do in worship because the words that we sing, you see, they, they form us and they get into us often in ways that the spoken word doesn't. In these psalms, they're inculcating in the people of God, in us, a right theology about who God is. About how we are to understand the world, how we are to understand ourselves. They were used by the corporate people to sing and to remind one another about who God is and who we are. And Psalm 33 is a perfect example of that, because Psalm 33 is a hymn of praise. So let's go ahead and read Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. 
The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our God and our King, we do thank you that we can come to this portion of your word that you have preserved it for us, and that you have given it to us. And so we ask now that as we come to it, that you would use your spirit to open our eyes and soften our hearts and enliven our hands so that we would honor you and praise you. Help us now so that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, our God and our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. So that word praise uh, is uh, a word that we use very frequently in worship. Almost every Sunday, I would imagine, we use that word praise. Um, But it's a very churchy word, isn't it? I mean, we don't use that word very often outside these walls. We use it a lot in these walls, right? I mean, the songs we just sang, right? Praise his name, praise the Lord, all creatures of our God and King. Sing praise, hallelujah, praise, praise, praise. Praise, 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 right? We say it all the time within these walls, but as soon as we leave these walls, we don't use that word very often, right? We often get at the thing that praise is speaking of, but we say things like honor or approval or compliment. Like, that's what we are talking about outside these walls. So so I wonder if we've ever really thought what we mean when we say praise. I wonder if we've really ever thought about it. I mean, we say it so quickly, and it just rolls off our tongue so easily. I wonder how much thought we've given to where praise comes from and why we are called to praise. I mean, have you ever really thought about it? I think we just take it for granted. Well, C.S. Lewis, uh, in his writings, in one of his little books called Reflections on the Psalms, he takes up this question about where praise come from, comes from and, and the nature of praise. And he said this. He said, the most, act, most obvious fact about praise had strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. And I think that that's how we often think about it, right? To praise something is to honor it, to compliment it. But he went on. He said, I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. A lover praising their beloved, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. Praise for weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians and scholars. I love it. 
prays for rare beetles. <laughs> I've never done that, but I'm sure there are those of you who maybe do praise for all things that we enjoy. It's so great, isn't it? That that's what he's saying, that the natural overflow of joy in our lives, it will create praise. And the amazing thing, as I thought about this, is how, how we do this instinctually. We're not taught to do this. That, that we, we just know that when we experience something good and something beautiful, we will naturally praise it. It will overflow that joy into praise. I actually see this every single week. I see it every single week when I go to my son's baseball games. Because when Cole plays baseball with his teammates and the players make a great play in the field or they have a beautiful hit or they slide safely into home, what do the kids do? They celebrate. They rejoice. Right? I mean, just the other day, we had our first walk-off hit of the season. A kid got a single and scored two runs in the bottom of the inning, the last inning, and all the kids ran onto the field celebrating, and they're high-fiving. And if they're demonstrative like my little son is, <laughs> that's a compliment, Bubba, um, then, then they're going to say, that was amazing, that was awesome. They're going to chest bump each other, and they're going to talk about how wonderful it was. They're going to praise one another. And as I thought about what they do every single game, I realized something. That for all of my coaching, I'm one of the coaches, for all of my coaching, for all of my teaching them to keep their glove down and keep their hands back and to run the base, for all of my coaching, I have never had to coach them on how to celebrate. I've never had to coach them on how to praise, on how to rejoice. They just know to do it. They just know it instinctually. They, they know how to do it because we are inherently created to celebrate that which is good and beautiful. That joy will naturally overflow into praise. And that's what the psalmist is telling us. That's how the psalm began, right? In verse 1, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. That this is what we are to do. We are to be a people of praise. That we praise the Lord. And the psalmist tells us why we praise the Lord. We praise him because of the power of his word. It's what we see in verses 6 through 9. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number nine, asks the question, what are God's work of creation? And the answer to it is, the work of creation is God's making all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. By the word of his power. By the word of his power, you see, creation came into existence because God spoke. Right? I mean, that's exactly what Genesis 1 tells us. Now, if, if you've been around the church, you're like, I know, Penny. I know, God created it all. But, but just think about that for a second. I mean, seriously. Think about Genesis 1. That in the beginning, before there were the heavens and the earth and all that they contained, and there was just Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect Trinitarian love and relationship with one another, before there were the heavens and the earth, God existed. And then he spoke heavens 
and there were the heavens. And he spoke, and there was earth. And he spoke, and he said, sea and fish, and the fish started jumping out of the water. And he said, land and animals, and the antelope was galloping through the fields. He just spoke. I mean, think about how incredible that is. Like, how often do you speak and people even listen? (laughs) Go to your room, clean up your mess, turn in that report, right? And we have to threaten, we have to provoke, we have to manipulate, right? That's what we have to, but God, all he said was ant. And there was an ant. By the word of his power, that is incredible. The sort of power that God has to be able to speak things into existence. The word of his power, he formed the world, but he also maintains it. That's what 7 and 9 tell us. God gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. God said, stop to the waters. And they stopped. They didn't keep flooding onto the beach. They stopped. His word continues even now to have authority over creation. I mean, do you remember in the Gospels when Jesus was in a boat out on the lake and the winds were blowing and the waves were crashing and he was taking a nap? You remember this? And the the disciples are freaking out because they're convinced they're going to drown. And so they wake him and Jesus stands up and he sees the storm raging around him. And what does he say? Well, he doesn't say, batten down the hatches and raise the mainsail and prepare the oars. Like, I, I really have no idea what any of that meant, but, but that's what they do, like, in pirate movies, right? That's what they say, so. But that's not what Jesus said. He didn't say any of those things. Do you remember what he said? He stood up and he said, peace, be still. And he wasn't talking to his disciples. He was talking to the creation. And the wind stopped. And the waves calmed. It was as though he said, hush, y'all be quiet, sit down. And it listened. The power of God's word. Y'all, that, that is enough in of itself to praise the Lord. I mean, if the psalmist stopped right there, we could just spend the next little while praising God for the power of his word that is revealed in creation. But the psalmist doesn't stop there. He gives us other reasons for why we praise the Lord. We don't just praise him because of the power of his word. We also praise him for the prevailing of his might. And we see his might showing up in a number of different places in the psalms, in this psalm. The first is the fact that he is sovereign over all. It's what we see in verses 13 through 15. If you follow along, the psalmist writes, The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. So where is God right now? He is in heaven. And he is looking down upon man. The description of where God is located and his posture towards his creation in of itself points to his authority to his might, his power over this world. Because there is no one who looks down upon God. God looks down upon us. I mean, even the language of sitting enthroned, right? That is kingly, royal language. Who sits on a throne? A king. 
the king who rules over all. That's what we heard, right? He sees all the children of men. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. All means all. All the children of men and all the inhabitants and all of our deeds, he sees them. He looks down upon them. You see, friends, the truth is, is that whether you acknowledge that God is the king over all or whether you acknowledge that he is the ruler, it doesn't change the fact that he is. He is the sovereign over this world. His prevailing might is shown in his sovereign rule, but it's also shown in the salvation that he brings. That's what we see in verses 10 through 17. There are two different contrasts that the psalmist puts before us to show his salvation. The first contrast is in verses 10 through 11. The contrast is between the council of the nations and the council of the Lord. Now, council is just another way of saying plans. Okay, so that's the first contrast, the, the plans of the nations and the plans of the Lord. The second contrast shows up in verses 16 and 17, where we have the strength of the warrior and the army versus the implied strength of the Lord. Now, in both of these contrasts, this is the great Sunday school question. You can give the Sunday school answer. Who is the greater, the nations or God? Come on, you can say it. God. That's right. The Sunday school answer is right. Who is greater, the armies of the world or the Lord? Thank you. Right? That's right. That is what we are supposed to see in this, that it is God's power, his strength, right? He is able to do what the warrior and the horse and the army are unable to do. The psalmist acknowledges the strength and the power of the warrior and the horse and the army, right? He called them great. But the point is, as great and as powerful as the army might be, they are nothing in comparison to the power of God, to his might, to his strength. And that's because the Lord's strength, it is out of his strength that he is able to do what no one else can do. It is the Lord's might that gives us hope. It is his strength that gives salvation. The warrior and the nation, they can protect us from other nations. And they can protect us from other wars and from other warriors. But they can do nothing against our greatest enemy. As strong as they might be, they cannot do anything against sin and death and the devil. But in our place of greatest need, the Lord shows his might. The Lord shows his might because in the cross, when Christ died, he took our sins upon himself and he accomplished the mightiest act that has ever been accomplished in the history of the world. He took our judgment upon himself and he forgave us of our sins. The judgment that we were deserving, it was no more. He wiped it away. He replaced it with grace and forgiveness. The death that should have been ours, he took it upon himself, but then he defeated death by rising from the grave. And he put to shame the schemes of the devil. He could not defeat our Lord. Because he is the mighty one. He is the powerful one. That's why we put our hope in him. That's why we look to him for our salvation. That's why we praise him. Because of his prevailing might. 
As if that wasn't enough, the psalmist continues. He tells us one other reason for why we are to praise the Lord. It's because of his persistent love. It's what we see in verses 18 through 22. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. The eye of the Lord is on his people. God turns his face towards us, not in judgment, but with care to deliver us. To deliver our souls, to keep us alive, because he is our help and our shield. He looks down upon his people with love and compassion. It is out of his steadfast love that God looks on his people. Steadfast love, y'all have heard that phrase before. If you've been with us for the last couple of summers, you've heard me say that there are two Hebrew words that I think all God's people need to know. Okay, we, I, I don't, you know, say Hebrew words very often. I don't say Greek words ever because I know Tobias will need to correct me later. Okay, but, but there are two Hebrew words we need, and, and that, that, that's because I get it wrong, by the way. Um, but anyway, uh, there are two Hebrew words uh, that I think every, uh, every, peop, every person in God's community should know. The first is Yahweh right? Yahweh, God's personal covenantal name, Y-H-W-H. This is his, his personal name that he reveals to his people. We actually see it in our passage. We see it in verse 18 when it's said the Lord, the eye of the Lord, when it shows up in lowercase or lowercase caps like it does there, that is a translation of that personal name Yahweh. So the eye of Yahweh is on those who fear him. That's the first Hebrew word. The second Hebrew word is the word chesed. Chesed. It speaks of God's covenantal love. And that's what we see in verses 18 and 22. His steadfast love. That's how the English in the Psalms translates that word chesed. You see, chesed shows up in 123 verses in the Psalms. I looked at every single one of them. And every single time steadfast love shows up in the Psalms, it is translating that Hebrew word chesed. And what it is getting at is it is telling us of God's covenantal, personal love for his people. A love described in the Jesus Storybook Bible as God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Now, now I know the Jesus Storybook Bible is a resource for children, right? It's not a theological tome. It's not full of, like, um, like intricate, exegetical theology. I understand that, but I have to tell you, I think that that is the best definition of God's steadfast, chesed love. Because what that is getting at is the fact that God's love is unbreakable. It is unchanging. It does not fade, and it does not waver. And that is the love that he showers upon his people. That is the love that he shows to us. You see, God doesn't love you one minute and then despise you the next. That if you are trusting in Christ, he doesn't shower you with love only to replace that love with indifference when you sin. He doesn't look upon you and throw his arms up impatiently 
and say to you again? No, he loves you continually. And he does so not because we're so lovable, but because his love is unbreakable. It is sealed by the blood of Christ, who said, greater love has no one than this, that one should lay down his life for his friends. And if you are trusting in him, that is what he calls you. That he has given his life for you so that his love may sit upon your shoulders, that his love may be over your life. That's why we praise him. Because of his persistent love. It does not change and does not waver and does not end. So we praise the Lord. We praise the one who has this love and this power and this might. But what does praise look like? Have you noticed that, that, that we've only talked about why we praise God? So what should our praise look like? Well, the psalmist tells us at the very beginning of our passage in verses 1 through 3. He tells us what praise should look like, and he uses language like shout, give thanks, make melodies, sing, play skillfully. Do you know what all of these things are? They are audible, they are outward, and they are expressive. That's what they are. Do you notice what the psalmist didn't say? He didn't say, with all of the joy that you have of the Lord, for all that he has done and all that he is, now quietly ponder in the recesses of your mind and celebrate over in the corner by yourself. He didn't say that, did he? No, what he said was shout. Shout for joy in the Lord. That's what he said. And that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, really, when we think about all that the Lord has done and all whom he is, how can we not rejoice and celebrate? I mean, I have to tell you all, I have to tell you, I always find it so bizarre when people talk about the amazing things that God has done and the works and the beauty of salvation, and they do so as though they're reading the periodic table of the elements. Like, I'm sorry, but my goodness, boring, right? Like, um, so I know I just offended, like, all the scientists and the medical people in there. I'm sorry, but, but like, really, <laughs> like, celebrate, rejoice. We know what this looks like, right? We know what celebration is to look like. I mean, think about it like this. I want you to imagine that Virginia Tech is in the national championship game for football, okay? They've never won a national championship in any sport, I believe. Or maybe bass fishing, I think, is right. Is that right? It's something like that, I think. So, um, so they've never won the national championship in football, okay? And they're in the national championship game. And to make it even sweeter, they're playing their arch rivals, UVA. Now, I know that we have to suspend belief, this, you know, to imagine UVA being in the championship game for football, right? But, but just do this for a second. Like, like, if we were talking about lacrosse or baseball or basically every other sport, it wouldn't be hard to imagine. But, but for football, they're playing UVA, okay? And at the very last second, as time is running out, Tech scores the game-winning touchdown and wins by one point. Now, what would you do in that historical moment? if you're a tech fan. <laughs> That's right. If you were at the game or you were in your living room watching the game, I'll tell you what you wouldn't do. You wouldn't sit back and start golf clapping. 
Do y'all remember golf clapping? Like, they don't golf clap anymore because people celebrate, right? But you wouldn't start golf clapping and look at another and go, that was just marvelous. It was wonderful. <laughs> this is so historical. I can't believe we did it. Like, that's not what you would do, would you? Of course not. You'd be jumping up and down, and you'd be rejoicing, and you'd be celebrating, and you'd be slapping hands, and you'd be praising the game-winning drive and the coach and the players who made it all happen. And you know what? No one would expect anything less than that. And how much more for the creator of the universe who has saved your soul? How much more... For the God who has demonstrated the power of his word and the prevailing of his might and the persistence of his love. Should we not praise him and rejoice and celebrate and shout with joy at what he has done? I mean, when we consider all that he has done and all whom he is, how can we not shout for joy? How can we not make melody to him? How can we not sing to him a new song, playing skillfully on the strings with loud shouts? How can we not praise our God? Let us do so. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we do thank you for all that you have done, that you have brought salvation to your people, that you have saved us, that you have brought renewal into our lives that you have shown the power of your word, the prevailing of your might, the persistence of your love, that you have showered us with these things. And so we ask that you would open our mouths and that you would enliven our hearts so that we would praise you. We would praise you with our lips and with our voices and we would praise you with our lives today and all of our days, praising our God in whose name we pray. And God's people said... Amen.